Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Celtic Step Live. Welcome to Celtic Stuff Live on CLNS Radio, the leading online provider of audio and video coverage for Boston sports. I'm your host, Justin Poulin, flying solo today, but we've got another excellent off-season interview for our series that's going to take you all the way up to training camp. As a matter of fact, it's Danny LaRue, who is a new contributor to the CLNS radio network with the Real GM radio podcast, although he's been doing it for long before joining the CLNS radio network, but we absolutely love having him aboard. He also frequently co-hosts the Dunk on basketball podcast with Nate Duncan. Uh, writes for Real GM, has been credentialed since 2009 with the Warriors, and is now with the startup, The Athletics. So obviously, Danny contributing on multiple levels. And I think last week's interview with Sean Grandy follows the path of someone who is extremely successful at a young age in a very traditional path. Obviously, Sean was there in the early days of WEEI and then uh, shares the the accolade of having uh, called 1,000 NBA games uh, and only one of three people to have done that under the age of 40. So Sean always been gracious, gracious with his time. And I think that that interview, well, first off, I think it set download records for Celtic Stuff Live, but I think also was very insightful. And Sean really helped us kick off this interview series. And now I'm excited to take it to somebody who has taken a much more non-traditional path in somebody like Danny LaRue. So this will be our second interview in the series. Just And this is going to be great stuff. What I'm interested to see is I know that Danny is a talker, and I certainly love to talk. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I uh, would love to keep it under an hour, but stay tuned. We'll certainly find out if we can or can't get it in under an hour. Don't forget to follow Celtic Stuff Live on Twitter at CSL underscore Tweet Live, as well as both hosts John and myself 
myself, I'm at CSL underscore John, uh, Justin, and you can follow John at CSL underscore Duke, as well as the entire CLNS Radio Network at CLNS Radio. Don't forget our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash CLNS fans, and download our app for iOS and Android. Not only Celtic Stuff Live on that app, but also the Real GM Radio podcast and another favorite Celtics beat which had an excellent interview this week on Sunday with Austin Ainge which I think you're going to love and appreciate and then also Bobby Manning who has the Bobcast just finished out 10 episodes and Bobby's interview with Chad Finn being the inspiration for Celtics Stuff Live's off-season interview series because Bobby is somebody himself who is an aspiring member of the media who has diversified and reached out and written for Celtics blog is now going to be covering for a Red Sox outlet I can't remember the name off the top of my head and obviously contributes to Bobcast here on CLNS Radio Network so make sure you download our app and find all of that great content lots of Celtics shows just added Causeway Street as well with one of our post-game show host Joe Sway so you've got to check that out and don't forget our YouTube channel youtube.com backslash CLNS radio for high definition full length locker room interviews and the garden report with Jared Weiss and that garden report will be back very very soon the preseason is just around the corner we're going to get you through the rest of August and September with these off-season interview series and then you're going to have that garden report back and make sure you listen to Danny's most recent Real GM Radio podcast because it did feature CLNS's own Jared Weiss from the Garden Report. It was a fantastic breakdown with an Atlantic Division preview, so definitely be checking that out. A quick shout to our sponsor, Fan Essentials. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, which should be the Celtics, and every month you get team gear shipped right to your door. Of course, if you're listening to this show, maybe your favorite favorite team is the Golden State Warriors because Danny LaRue is our guest today. So certainly you could get Golden State Warriors gear delivered straight to your door as well. But they find all of that sports gear so that you don't have to. And each one of these fan boxes comes fully packed with amazing gear. It's a great gift idea for any sports fan. And prices start at just $34.99. So you can support Celtic Stuff Live and save 30% on your first month. That's right. We're giving you 30% off on your first month subscription. Just use the promo code CSL2016 at checkout. Go to fanessentials.net to get all the essentials you need. And don't forget, Celtic Stuff Live is giving away one free month each week to our listeners. That's each week we're giving away a free month of Celtics gear. All you've got to do is retweet our show announcement with hashtag Fan Essentials. Make sure you're following our Twitter account at CSL underscore Tweet Live so we can send you a direct message with all the details to redeem your free Celtics or Golden State Warriors gear. We're going to announce the winner on every week's show and just stay tuned after the interview with Danny LaRue, we will be announcing this week's winner. And, of course, we'll tweet it out on Twitter as well so that everybody that you know that you are the winner and you've got some free gear from your favorite team coming your way. Really excited for this interview with Danny LaRue. Everybody sit back, 
you know, enjoy a cup of coffee on Monday morning, maybe, is when you're listening to this. We do come out at 9 o'clock every Monday morning, so enjoy the show. Sit back, have your breakfast, drink some coffee. Maybe you're driving on the way to work, but this interview with Danny LaRue is going to be outstanding. And real quick, just a quick spot and a reminder, another one of our sponsors, we've really taken off. I think the support of this show has been amazing, and I want to just thank all of you listeners for downloading because it's giving us more and more opportunities to to bring more content to you and do better every week. But now a word from our newest sponsor, Audible, which has graciously uh, been a big supporter of Celtic Stuff Live moving forward. So we'll be right back after this. Joining me now, Danny LaRue, and boy, Danny, I'm really excited because you're new, uh, a new addition to the CLNS radio team with the Real GM radio uh, podcast, and we're really excited about this, and I, I listened to your most recent one with Tim Bontemps and another CLNS host here, Jared Weiss, but I know you also are a frequent contributor and co-host on the Dunked On podcast and Dunked On Basketball podcast, which you're telling me you're really rolling right from one into the other and uh, hopping right on another podcast with me here on Celtic Stuff Live, and I certainly appreciate that, but I also know that you cover the CBA and salary cap for the sporting news and just to set the table a little bit you're our second guest our first guest was sean grandy play-by-play voice of the boston celtics uh we have another show on the clns radio network the bobcast he interviewed bobby manning interviewed chad finn which really kind of kicked it off because bobby is 18 years old he's headed off to syracuse and he has big plans to uh, to make a, a career of this and has already had a lot of opportunities to write for Celtics blog and, and obviously contribute the Bobcast to the CLNS radio network. But he was interviewing Chad and, and asking Chad, you know, what are some advice that you have for somebody who's up and coming, young, getting started, looking at this new media world and how to navigate it? And um, I thought that was, wow, that's a great way for Celtics stuff live, since we are very Celtics-centered, that we could fill the off-season and some of these doldrums leading up to training camp by being able to interview people and how they kind of, how their careers evolved. And then ironically, I was listening to your show just the other day uh, as I've kind of uh, begun to get myself reacclimated after a four-year hiatus, just getting back into things as of January. I was listening to your show, and at the very end, you mentioned the fact that you were getting questions about how your career developed, some of the ways that you came onto the scene, and that you were planning on getting it down on paper and being able to, you know, reference that. And I thought, you know what? If you're already in the process of it, what a great opportunity for you to come on to our show and talk through that a little bit especially since that's really what our off-season interview series is all about. So, Danny, thank you for your time, and welcome to Celtic Stuff Live for your first appearance. Happy to be on. Yeah, it was a nice little bit of serendipity. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, I think everybody's trying to figure out ways to fill in the off-season. Now, you, because you cover on, you know, not only the Dunked On Basketball podcast, but also on Real GM Radio, you cover such a broad 
variety of topics. You're making hay with with the Olympics. They're probably giving you plenty of content to fill in the offseason as sort of trades and free agency dulls down and and we head into training camp. Yeah, it's it certainly is different. And I mean, with Real Jam Radio, it's a weekly podcast. So between just kind of setting the table, like the one that you listened to and referred to was I'm doing a what I call a capsule podcast on each division. So that's going through kind of an off-season review and season preview. And so if you do six of those, because there's six divisions and you do one a week, then that's a month and a half of content right there. And I'm not, it's not going to be all I do, but it'll, those will be interspersed along with other stuff. And then what's nice about that is that they're not super time sensitive and you, you run into these issues as I, I do dunked on, which is typically very time sensitive of just kind of how you want how you want your listeners to engage in your product and that is so i always try to make real gm a little bit a little bit less time sensitive a little more evergreen and the capsules certainly do that yeah they definitely do and i really enjoyed the atlantic division even though it kind of morphed a little bit into a pacific division preview as well but i thought i you know and before we get into it because i really do i want you to walk me through your career and and talk about different opportunities and i know that you went to the uc hastings uh college of law and i know that that has got to be a really big uh piece of your understanding of the cba and salary cap and being able to look at that in a really in-depth way but before we go there there was one thing that came up and it was about Isaiah Thomas and I I've been talking about this a little bit but maybe not as much as I should have on Celtic Stuff Live which is you know really this this idea two things I guess two points that you brought up that that have been swirling around in my brain already on Isaiah Thomas number one you know what position is he in the depth chart when the team is truly going to be championship caliber. And I, and I think, you know, it was, it was at three or four in the discussion with Tim Bontemps, you know, he definitely felt strongly about Isaiah Thomas on that episode. But then I think the other thing is these short guards, the minute they lose that half step, because that explosiveness is what gets them up to the rim. And especially somebody like Isaiah Thomas, who so much of his game is attacking the basket, how quickly that can drop off. So Seems like the Celtics have a little bit of a window there for Horford and Isaiah Thomas that, you know, probably three years, but that last year with Al Horford and, and obviously if they decide to re-sign Thomas at the end of, I think he's got two more years left, but there could be a, a little bit of a drop-off that Celtics fans have to prepare themselves for in this case. So earlier during the season, I got a lot of flack for, I wrote a piece for the Sporting News talking about how I felt that the Clippers should trade Chris Paul. And one of the stats that I threw out in that is relevant to this conversation. That's that only five players, six, two or shorter have had even one 20 or higher PER season after the age of 30. So basically what that is getting to is the idea 20 PER, you know, it's not my favorite stat, but it is a good kind of bellwether. So that's above average, but not a ton average and so really that group is almost all of them are are great players John Stockton Jerry West Lenny Wilkins you know those types of guys and whereas Tiny Archibald and Mark Price those type players did not make it at all you know like that's just kind of the way that it worked and so Isaiah is even shorter by far than 6'2 so those guys do generally fall off and why Isaiah I think what Jared talked about in in is, is well suited is that he's very well suited for this Celtics team at this stage however the Celtics have loftier aspirations, both in the present and the future. And I think that that's something that GMs, coaches, everybody has trouble with, fans too, is the idea that somebody who's good for where you are now is not necessarily good for where you are going. 
And Isaiah is a talented player. He's on a bargain contract. And both of those things are not forever. And there's a sentimentality that is important, but there's a sentimentality that can be detrimental. And I think that the Celtics have a tightrope to walk with him. And the timeline is shorter than I think some people think, which is really important here. He only has two more years under contract. And if if he wants to get paid and, you know, it's justifiable that he can ask for that because you're worth whatever somebody will pay you. That next contract is not one that I would want to be the one signed, putting putting pen to paper on those checks every month. It's really important, I think, that Marcus Smart has his breakthrough year that everybody is anticipating this season. Uh, it seems like, hey, year number three, first off season to put in all the work. Questions are there. Can you run pick and roll? Can you plan, can you run the offense with pace? And and can you hit outside shots? Can you develop that three pointer that we've seen in spurts, but not consistently? If Marcus Smart does that leap, or obviously trades change everything, but minus a trade, if Marcus Smart makes that leap this year, then certainly they would make that would it would make it less. I don't know, less pressure on Danny Ainge and the crew to keep Isaiah Thomas on this squad when his next, you know, bringing in the Brinks truck when when the contract expires. What do you think are the odds? And it'll be the last Celtics question until maybe we wrap. But what do you think are the odds that that Marcus Smart is going to be able to take that leap this season? Uh, I think this season, maybe like one in three, one in two. I really like Marcus, but being able to run a pick and roll competently, like at the level that the Celtics will need is a lot to ask. Like that is something that a lot of talented players can't do. But one thing I want to mention as before we go into this is Isaiah and Marcus are very important parts of this, but as, as I I've been getting back into, and we'll talk about my roots in terms of basketball, getting back into watching high school and college guys more, because I went to the Hoop Summit and the Diaz Nations, this is going to be a really strong draft class of point guards. So that is the other kind of fail-safe here, is if both of those options aren't really working, somebody like Markel Fultz, or uh, there are a couple other interesting options in this class, that that's not a perfect fit, but that might work. All right. So as you mentioned, uh, you know, we'll get into it a little bit more as we walk through your career. So let's let's start down that path. And specifically, you know, the first season where you covered the Warriors as a credentialed member of the media through Real GM, it was 09 and 10. And I believe it was Nelly's last season and Steph's rookie season. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So the the first game I covered with a credential was Stephen Curry's first game at Oracle, I believe. There could have been one preseason game before it, but I don't think there was, and that was Don Nelson's last year. And one of the there are a lot of things that have changed since then, but one thing I want to mention at the outset, we'll get into my background, but I was also the I wouldn't I wasn't the first new media person credential, but I was the first one not really affiliated with a big site, you know, ESPN, Yahoo, that kind of thing, like uh, NBA.com. So, and it that time because the Warriors were terrible, it was a very small group of media. I mean, really, in terms of the people who were there every game, I think it was about 10 of us. And so I was one of that 10. And actually, almost all of them are still there. Like, well, I think it's like eight of that group are still covering the Warriors, but everybody else has just expanded dramatically. And it's interesting because, and I, w- I want to talk to you about this a little bit too, because I think my first season 
covering the Celtics credentialed was 07, and it was the second half of the 06 07 uh, season, right before they got Kevin Garnett. And to be honest with you, I was supremely surprised that they were so gracious as to renew those credentials after they essentially went second worst to first in uh, in the matter of one off season in the acquisitions of Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett. But um, I was the second person to cover the team through Celtics blog. The first one was Eric Weiss. He covered the first half of that year, and then he moved out of the Boston market, and I drove down from Maine and, and sort of picked up where he left off. But I remember having an enormous amount of nerves, and I think you know a big part of this whole this whole off-season interview series is to sort of talk to people who are just beginning to get their started. Many, many, many of them, probably very similar to you, were covering high school and college and different levels of basketball, and then all of a sudden they're in this big stage. And I didn't. Eric wasn't there to show me even where to walk when I walked into the TD Bank North Garden. So I had no idea where I was going and what I was doing. I had no idea what the protocols were. I figured it out all on my own. Were you in a similar position that way? And if so, did you have the nerves and how did you handle the nerves in that scenario? I was in a very similar situation. I'll I'll clarify a little bit on what you said. The first thing I ever covered with a credential was that Warriors game. I never covered any high school or college. It was just something I was interested in and went to. But first first thing I covered. So, yeah, I'm coming into a blind with no media background like I'm somebody who who well, I was in law school at the time we'll talk about that I'm sure and so I went in I didn't know anybody I'd only at that point in my life I believe I'd only been to four NBA games in person so I was going to I was going in that stage and just you know took took Bart over from San Francisco and I knew nothing I didn't know where the locker rooms were it actually took me a couple of games to find out where the locker rooms were because the funniest thing about having a credential is that when you have a credential and it says all access or whatever it says Everybody assumes you know where you're going and you know what you're doing. And eventually you do, but at first you don't. And so like I ended up, I think four out of the first five games I covered at Oracle Arena, I ended up in the deep bowels of the arena, like where the concession workers were preparing for the next game after a game, because I didn't know where to go and nobody stopped me. So I just end up in these places where nobody's supposed to be because nobody's ever going to tell you no. <laughs> that is so classic. I I gotta be honest with you. I I didn't quite have that much trouble where I wound up into into oddball, you know, like rooms, etc. And nobody ever. I don't know if you ever got ushered out of a place you weren't supposed to be in. But I was wondering how did the members of the traditional media respond to you? Because I definitely I can remember. You know, people like Mike Gorman, like Sean Grandy, uh, Scott Souza was a really big one. Jess Camerato, who's now covering uh, the Philadelphia 76ers for CSN Philly. And I remember them all kind of even actually even Mark Murphy and uh, Steve Wolpet from the Herald. I can I could probably go on, but everybody was really welcoming to me. And it wasn't what I initially anticipated. What was what was the response with the Warriors traditional media members towards, you know, you coming on the scene and being, you know, the first from not an ESPN or a Yahoo to be able to uh, to cover that team. I, they were great. And what makes the Bay Area distinct in this way, and this is still true, but it was even more true then, is there are actually a lot of national figures that just happen to live in the Bay Area. So the person I sat next to in my first Warriors game was actually Rick Buecher, who at that point, you know, he was 909. He was on ESPN all the time. Uh, he was somebody who I'd watched a lot. And so that was crazy. And I was sitting next to him. Mark Spears is 
is there and like Mark Spears and I become friends over the years. He's a wonderful guy. He was really helpful. And and just all the other national people, but also the people that I want to single out for praise are the local people who actually I was separated from them in terms of sitting for the games. But Marcus Thompson and Rusty Simmons were both just wonderful with me and Jeff Lepper of NBA.com. And they really I wouldn't say it's necessarily that they showed me the ropes. But when I had questions, they answered those and they were very supportive. And the Warriors also have an incredible PR staff, same people that were there when I started, especially Ray Ritter and Dan Martinez. So it's the same people that are that are there. But I I mean, I didn't I didn't ask as many questions as I should have in that sense. And when you get back to nerves, it took me about half a season to be willing to ask Don Nelson a question. I was going to visiting locker rooms and asking their coaches because I didn't really care. But I was just a little bit intimidated by Nelly. He's such a big figure in the Bay Area, big figure in Boston as well, incidentally. And it took me a little while to get there with him, but it was also good to get those those butterflies out at that point because the team reached higher stages. And also, that gave me the motivation to be that person for basically all of the other new media people that came in. And that's something that I've taken a lot of pride in. Granted, I can't help everybody now in the same way that, that others did for me because there are just so many, but that's something that I tried to do. Well, you know, it's paving the way for the people who come after you and uh, trying to take care of that and nurture it and make sure that it's a positive experience for the organization so that it'll continue is is another factor that that played in even for me. And I'm glad that you were thinking big picture that way as well. And and now it's sort of like give back. And, you know, if I hadn't taken a four year hiatus, um, I would have watched guys like Jared Weiss, you know, sort of come onto the scene, you know, after me. And instead, you know, I took a break and I, and I wasn't covering the team, but now I'm, I'm back here and there's all kinds. I mean, even somebody like Kevin O'Connor, who uh, just just moved on to the ringer from Celtics blog. It's, it's really great to see a lot of these individuals having success. And I think a lot of it is uh, there's a big benefit to the diversification of what you cover. And I think your background is very much the same. You have a podcast. You do two different podcasts. You work for the Sporting News. You've written for Real GM. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is to diversify the outlets that you contribute to to help increase, I guess, maybe your virtual or you know your virtual footprint to help bring people into the good work that you're doing? Well, it certainly helps because it, as long as you have faith in, in the work that you are doing, which if you are in this business, you should, like that is something that you should do. It, it's good because it allows different people to connect with you. And so that's also why I do things like AMAs on Reddit and I'm on Twitter and everything like that is because you never know where somebody's going to get their, their start with you. And while my work goes over a breadth because I do, I, I watch and cover the entire NBA, the hope is that they like your, let's say your voice in the sense of your writing voice, not the speaking voice, because I have pity for those people. But the that idea is important. And also for me, I think back to something one of my law mentors told me because he was, you know, he knew my legal writing. And then when he started, when I started covering the Warriors, he started reading that too. His, his theory is that writing anywhere helps writing everywhere. And so I feel that's the same way within the basketball world, within the sports world. And one of the other big takeaways from that, which is something that's changed my career a lot, is if you're pragmatic enough and, and understanding enough to know that writing different places also means that you have to write for different audiences, that's how you get versatile and how you get better. Because 
I'll give you I'll give a good example. So like my when I write for Real GM on a cap issue, I'm writing for people who live and breathe this stuff. Like that that's what they do. So I can make a reference to the mid level exception. I can make a reference to the over thirty six rule, and they will know what that means. If I am writing on the same topic for the sporting news, I have to approach it completely differently. I'm explaining one of those concepts in the in the larger sense of it. And if I didn't do that, my work wouldn't be as good. And so that has helped me be a better writer. You know, there, I think there's another thing, too, <clears throat> that I want to bring up that I didn't even realize until you just started to talk about your law background and how you approach each one of these outlets. But there's something about people who have to think methodically through legal situations. I mean, I, I firmly believe in listening to you talk that your legal background has also helped you sort of frame out all these different areas and how to focus on them strategically and differently just because, you know, it's a detail-oriented job, right? Any Anytime you practice law, the details are what matter the most. Am I correct? Sure. And I think the other really important part of this, which is whether you have that background or not, that is very important is knowing how to structure an argument. And the idea also being something that has struck me reading various things and part of a, a common thread for pieces that I don't like or opinions and all that kind of stuff are when you can't when you when you say something that let's say it's provocative or it's interesting and you can't justify it like i don't throw things out in a piece like for example when I, we talked about the chris paul and the per thing i knew when i wrote a piece that, that the clippers should trade chris paul that i couldn't just write that and just have no substance i had to give arguments this is why he might fall off the table and also the other part of it from the legal background and this is something that is extremely important is acknowledging the potential criticism against argument because you can't be like oh i'm perfect i'm making this point and there are no other good points so you know with let's say with chris ball thing i said of course he's really good right now he's he's a wonderful player there's a very possibility he's the next john stockton and he 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 ages really well into his late 30s and 40s so that's something that also comes from the legal background because if you're a lawyer you have to do that you can't pretend that the other side's points don't exist because if you do if if you're a litigation attorney you're going to lose your cases yeah, you want to position it in such a way that it only strengthens your argument instead of weakens it through ignoring its existence. Well, or even then, you just say, yes, this is true, This is true, but my argument is better. It doesn't even have to be something that strengthens it. It's just that like, if you, if you fail to acknowledge the legitimacy of something, you are failing in your opportunity to say how your argument is better than that. You're just letting it speak for itself, and you're giving it way too much power. And I think that... This also, the idea of having to justify your opinions also really is a way of mitigating some of the, what is now really called hot takes in this business. Because if you have to justify your opinion using things other than like gut, you move away from some of the crazier thoughts. Because if you can't justify it, then really what's the point of it? And you know, you can do things like that on Twitter, but for pieces, I don't think there's much sustainability. And that's something like that. If for people who read my stuff, I, I, I get people who say this a lot is that my pieces are often structured like legal arguments, because for me, that's a persuasive way to make a case. What's also interesting, you bring up Twitter and the hot takes, but a great way to get people to read your article is to position your Twitter sort of, um, you know, teaser for the article in sort of a hot take kind of way. But then people who are maybe more often drawn to the hot take kind of come in and then all of a sudden they 
are more educated and maybe they see both points of view and instead they're getting an intelligent discussion instead of maybe something that's simply out there to drive clicks. And that's I've seen a lot of very good writers such as yourself use Twitter because you only have so many characters. It's sort of the hot take land. But then if you click through and you take the time to read, you find yourself uh, in in a much more intellectual discussion with one that, to your point, is based in, in more in fact or at least statistics or at least something that is supporting the argument versus, like you said, a gut feeling. Yeah, and that's something also that I have the benefit of thinking about a lot of these things unconventionally. And so that leads me to let's say, interesting opinions that I can justify. And the Chris Paul one is, is a great example of that. And and there were things that came out that criticized me for saying that that basically didn't get into the substance of it. And it's like, you know, I, I'm open to the idea that people disagree with it, but based, I, I will never, ever write a piece without an opinion that I believe in and a, and a conversation that I think is worth having because I, I one of my goals, and we'll talk about this, I hope at some point is that I never want to waste a reader's time and I, I produce a fair amount of material, but I know that everybody else's time is really valuable and that, so, so it all comes in with that. And so if I were to put out just like an opinion and not justify it, then what's the point of that? Maybe it starts a little bit of a conversation, but you have to start it on a substantive level because you can never expect it to rise to that without it. We are going to get back to that because I think that that is an important point about providing content and i think the fan base is becoming a much more educated fan base than ever before in many ways and the internet helps with that but let's <clears throat> let's go back to just how did you wind up getting into law what drew you you know coming out of high school or heading into college how did you find law as a profession so uh, it's interesting you say that cuz technically and we'll get into this law wasn't really my profession <laughs> um but so what happened is i went straight from high school to UCLA which is actually where I fell in love with basketball. I didn't grow up watching basketball that much. I, you know, I, I'd watch Michael Jordan and Magic and that type of thing, but it wasn't my it wasn't my life. Soccer, football, and baseball were. And so UCLA, I fell in love with it. I started out actually, I was admitted as a computer science major, but then jumped immediately over to political science. Quickly added economics, and then I I was had a lot of credits early on, so I actually was on pace to graduate in two years. Ended up adding minors and majors to uh, to go to four. But so I. I always was kind of of the mind of, well, what am I going to do next? And I started freaking out that I didn't really know. So that was what kind of originally drew me to law school because I knew that it was something that was intellectually interesting to me that had societal value and that I thought at the very minimum would be a way of kind of me putting a pause button on anything else and that if something jumped out over that couple of years, because I, I took the LSAT two years before I graduated college, of if I figure something else out, no big whoop, I'll do that instead. And if I don't, then I'll go to law school. And then, so I did that. And then I ended up getting getting admitted uh, off the wait list to UC Hastings, which was really perfect for me. So a lot of people who get involved with covering the CBA and the cap, um, as, as you do for the sporting news, a lot of times, uh, and they make no bones about it, they're showcasing themselves to an NBA front office to potentially go and, and work for one of the one of the clubs in the league. Is that a goal of yours uh, as you've gotten involved with the CBA, or was that more of just a natural fit because of your legal background? A little bit of both. It, it, the way I would phrase it, and there are people in this world who think about it very differently, for me, it, it is an option that if the opportunity presents itself, I will definitely consider it. But if it doesn't, I won't feel a, a disappointment or a lack of involvement in it because there 
it's a, uh, of course it would be amazing to be able to shape a team and be able to put some of these things that I've written about and the things that I think about into play. But something that covering the league that I've really thought about and how it's honed my opinion on this is that no matter what, because, you know, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm ever going to make enough money to own a team or, you know, have a, a family member that owns a team. I, all I can ever really be is a voice in the room. And while being a voice in the room would be a dream come true, that's a little bit different. You know, you're never going to get that kind of unilateral control. And that's actually something that people in my, in our world sometimes conflate, which is that sometimes when you see a GM make a bad trade, like, for example, for me, I would say the New Orleans Pelicans, like they made all these short-sighted trades right after they got Anthony Davis. That wasn't Del Demps' fault as the GM. That was the owner telling him, we have to win now or you're going to get fired. And so switching to that would change it. Whereas where where I am now, there is a stability in that, but also I know that my legacy is my own making. And I guess you could say that I believe enough in myself that I feel like I can make a better legacy that way. Yeah, it's interesting. You probably in your current role and contributing to, you know, coverage of the NBA, you probably have a lot more control over the content and how it's put out there and what you're doing, you know, creative control than maybe you would depending on who the owner of said club would be uh, giving you if you were to, to get brought onto a franchise. Yeah, it's it's certainly a realistic possibility. You never really know. But what I've always kind of said with that is I, if they and I say this with every potential employer is I will always listen. You know, if you want to, if, if they want to make me a pitch, I will listen to it. But one of the benefits, and this is true of any negotiation that when you're happy with the status quo is that you can be a little bit choosier. And so if the right opportunity presents itself in anything, I will jump on it. And if it doesn't, then I'm thrilled to do what I'm doing and expand it within more of my control. See, there's more of that law background there, the art of negotiation. I'm sure that there, there's an element of that in there as well. Um, so let's talk about some of the guys that did make that leap early on, Dean Oliver and John Hollinger, a couple of guys that early analytics, bringing that, that new analytics to, uh, to the NBA and then found themselves in the front office. And there are others that have had varying degrees of success, but you know, everybody likes to put point to Hollinger because he worked for ESPN before he headed off to the Memphis Grizzlies. But, um, it seems to me that the NBA very different than maybe baseball. And we always, we all talk about Moneyball, et cetera, but really lagged in this aspect. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about why maybe the N the NBA had lagged behind, at least baseball and and maybe some of the other sports in terms of analytics to uh, to drive front office decisions. I think it's actually a pretty easy explanation, and that's that you couldn't you couldn't see the counterweight. You couldn't see the you couldn't see the argument because no other teams were testing it out. And so basketball is actually a very small world, the NBA in particular. And when you looked at at that time, most GMs were former players. Typically, you know, like that was that was generally the path you can think about. And I'm not criticizing him like Joe Dumars or Danny Ainge, you know, that, that that's really who did that. And so what it takes for a Moneyball approach to stick is for a team to really try it and have it work. And one until you have that, you, you get into this risk and, and owners, generally speaking, especially if they're making money are are risk averse in that way because you don't want to be the guinea pig. Nobody ever really wants to be the guinea pig. But once you see it, then you try to get an edge however you can. And there are lots of different ways you can do that through what is under the gigantic umbrella that is analytics. I mean, you can think about 
with some of the stuff that the Spurs do, with even having a shooting coach, you know, like there are a lot of things, even in kind of old school ways that would generally be considered analytically friendly. Yeah. And, you know, there's something interesting about all of these different people that came out and that analytics doesn't necessarily have to be just one vein the way that maybe Moneyball was, you know, is on base percentage. But you look at somebody like Sam Hinkie who in listening to the Real GM radio podcast, I know you spent some time talking about Philadelphia, and one of the themes that came out on that recent show was that they might be um, you know, one of the worst teams in the league, but they're going to be must-watch because a lot of Sam Hinkie's work is now <clears throat> going to emerge. You know, Hopefully we'll see Joel Embiid on the court this year. Um, Dario Saric is going to be coming over. And so I wondered, do you think that somebody like Sam Hinkie got a raw deal in Philadelphia to not be able to see all this years of work and criticism that he had to take along the way, not maybe somehow materialize over the next season or two? I think Hinkie, first of all, he did a really good a really good job in terms of the main job of being a general manager, which is to put the best team on the floor in whatever window I use the phrase timetable of contention that you want. And so the Sixers had one that was way out. But his mistakes are very informative to people who want to do that sim to do that in the future. And first of all, you need ownership that's on board. And the second they went off board is when everything happened with the Colangelos. The second part of it is being a GM is more than just for those of you who play video games, you know, like making fake trades in NBA 2K and doing things like that. <laughs> Part of it is the PR side. It's, you know, making it. And that's where, in my opinion, Hinky really failed is the idea of, first of all, making a few kind of splashy signings that wouldn't really help. The example I used was Jeremy Lin last year, like just somebody who's not really going to make you that much better, but who will make it appear that you are better. So then you don't get that kind of heat. And the second thing is being out there yourself, because when you, this is something I talked about before with arguments, when you leave a void, it allows other people to fill in your argument for you. And what Hinky did, or more accurately did not do, is that he didn't make the argument for what he was doing, and so that allowed his opponents to define it. And that's when you get into tanking and all this kind of stuff. And and really what they did wasn't that different from what some of the other teams were doing. They were just a little bit more brazen about it. And they didn't have the PR savvy to kind of to polish it in the right way. And if they had done either of those two things, he probably still has his job. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think alignment from top to bottom of any organization is really important. And, you know, again, to your to the discussion about creative control for you to take a new opportunity in an NBA front office where you don't feel like that alignment's there. Why would you do that when you have alignment in your existing situation, which to your point gives you negotiating leverage. And uh, it is important to know because it does change. Sometimes you're in alignment and then all of a sudden you're not. And to be able to be attuned to that and feel that happening in an organization can help anybody in their career, whether it's media or just day-to-day work. Maybe you know, maybe you're uh, you're in a sales organization, whatnot. It's really important to be paying attention to that and making sure that you know everything is is in alignment. You're in a healthy culture that way. So um, I I do want to kind of keep walking a little bit through your career, but I think first I want to kind of get your insight into what lessons you think could be taken from your career 
that maybe an aspiring member of the media or somebody who is trying to to carve this new creative path to to being able to cover the NBA or cover a team on a regular basis. And specifically, you know, I think one that you've already mentioned was never to waste, you know, your reader's time. So maybe start there and then build off maybe some other lessons or, or philosophies that you think others can take from, from, from where you've had success to date. I'm going to start with one that's going to sound like a negative, but it isn't meant that way. It's just, I'm going to need to explain it. And that's don't anticipate making it your financial life. And what I mean by that is, if while that is, I would say, the goal for a lot of people doing it, when you don't go that way, you when you go that way, you put a lot of pressure on yourself, both early on and later on, that can end up making bad decisions. So uh, for me, so I started out, as I said, in law school, and then I actually never ended up practicing law. The job market in 2010, when I graduated, was really bad. I ended up going into other businesses. And I always, at that time, considered sports writing to be the greatest hobby in the world. That's the line I used with my friends. And it was completely true. You know, I got to go to NBA games whenever I wanted. I got to do all this kind of stuff. And I was never putting any pressure on myself to make it a career. And so what that what that ensures is that you're doing it because you love it. And that you are being sustained by something other than the finances of it. And then that meant that I wasn't pressured into taking jobs or positions that might not have worked because of doing that. And then eventually, you know, it became my career because... I got bigger, I earned it, I, you know, if you want to call it that. And I think that it's not as much about the path because it took me longer to get there than I'm sure it'll be for some people. But that mentality was very helpful for me. I have to follow up on that just because that is the that is the lesson that I learned the most from having the opportunities that I had as well. And had I not covered the Celtics, I never would have made the leap from a career in nursing over to now being a vice president of sales with the company I'm with now. And a big part of that is people would always ask me, they're like, you know, oh, it must have been awesome. And I was like, it was awesome. It was my passion. I loved it. And I think that's a real key component of what you're saying, Danny, is that you do need to be passionate to be in success, to be successful in whatever you do, because for people to like what you're contributing to society on any level, they want to know that it means something to you. Otherwise, it's not going to mean anything to them. And the other takeaway I always had, which is sort of in line, and it's another way to say what you said, but I always would say, you know, I what I learned from that experience was that you can do anything you want in life as long as you're willing to do it for free. You can you can create any reality as long as you don't attach money to it. It was an important lesson for me, and um, by doing that, I grew as a person, and now I found an alternate way for it to create money because I never would have been in sales had I not gone and been bold enough to get out of the nine-to-five and just really think outside of the box and try to create a new way to do something that I really wanted to get done. So I think that's a, a big key to what you said. What other what other lessons or advice, I guess, um, that you might you might give to to people listening to the show who are you know just maybe they maybe they just want to start a podcast and it's not even about money. It's just you know how do they how do they get better? How do they get people? to listen to to what they're providing for content or read their blog. Well, so quickly, I want to follow up on, on something you said, because I think that was a, a very important point. And something else I want to make a, a part of the reason why you want to go at it, not from the financial perspective, is because there is an immense amount of competition for very few spots, even in the writing world. And while we're all trying to grow the pie, 
there just there isn't as much in that. And so if you come at it from the standpoint of, oh, my God, I need to make money right away and do all this kind of stuff, it's probably not going to work. But if you it's just in that sense. But going on to the idea, and this actually does really tie in because this was part of the idea with Dunked On and part of the idea of Real GM, which started more than a year before it, is not only do you want to make something that is worth your listeners time or listeners readers time doesn't matter you're the person who is consuming your material you also want to make sure that ideally you're not saying something that anybody else is saying and if you are making sure that you're saying it better because otherwise they should just experience that other thing you know it's there's an idea in economics called pareto optimality it's anything like that if somebody else does what you're doing better than you then you should either be doing something different or not doing that you know that's just kind of the way it works so if you if if your goal is to get bigger, your goal should be finding not necessarily a market inefficiency, though that's the best way to do it. It's finding finding a, a niche, finding something that isn't out there. So what Dunked On went after, and Nate and I talked about this at length before we did it, is going for that intense review of games with the possi- with people who really love basketball and going at it from more of an analytical perspective. We didn't think at that time that anybody was really doing that in the daily format and that we we wanted to be there for the morning commute for at least the US and send it up being that we're pretty we we get a lot of listeners from outside of the US which is pretty fun. But that was the idea. We wanted to do something that wasn't out there. We wanted to fill a niche and in a way as importantly we felt that we could do it better, even if somebody else came in. We didn't know. You never know. There are some amazing people in this world. But we felt like we could do it justice as well, that somebody wouldn't jump into the space and just be better than us and basically take our momentum. So that idea is exceedingly important in writing or in podcasting of doing something different and doing it well. So you found your niche and your voice, and then that allowed you to set yourself apart from everything else that was being put out there. Sure, and if you want it, if your goal is something different, like your goal is to have fun with it and something like that, then you don't have to do that. You you don't have to follow those rules. But almost everybody who does this, whether it be if they want to admit it to themselves or not, you know, it's that you want to be the next big thing. And and by and large, in order to be the next big thing, you have to be at least some degree worthy of it. And so that's where you need that honest accounting. And while you have to do something you know, thinking of an angle and that there are so many, that's something I've learned being in this business as long as I have is that there are always new ways to do it and there are always talented people. So you just have to find the right, the right thing at the right time and, and run with it and be ready to change if things change around you. So you said you didn't even start really following basketball until you got to college. And I think I hadn't really prepared this question, but it sort of occurred to me as you were speaking how did you learn the game of basketball? How did you learn to appreciate the X's and O's? What resources did you use so that you could understand the game well enough to then, you know, engage in the Dunked On podcast with Nate Duncan? So, I I mean, one of the big benefits for me is that when I was there, the UCLA student section, if you got there early enough, was right at center court on, you know, like basically right at center court, three rows off the court. So... I was able to watch, and when I was there, it was the Pac-10, really high-end teams play all the time. And so I was able to see it from a level that I even kid, don't get to do as a, as a media member. Like, I, the best seats I've ever had for games were when I was in college. So that was a big, big part of it as well. But for me, the other major aspect of it was just talking with people and listening a lot and reading a lot. You know, I've been reading 
you know, Kevin Pelton and Ben Golliver and like, I've been reading everybody. Like if there's somebody who I, I, again, the people who fit my criteria of it always being worth your time. And I've learned so much from them. And also from talking to people like Nate and I had been friends for, uh, I think like a year and a half before we did the podcast. And there are a lot of brilliant people that cover this league and also getting to talk with coaches and players. I mean, one of the formative things that I always kind of thought when I would talk with players is I didn't really care about the, you know, like, oh, why didn't you play well type of questions. It would be, I would ask them questions that I legitimately wanted to know the answer to. So he's topical right now, but one of the best conversations I ever had as a media member was talking with Manu Ginobili after a game where the Spurs walloped the Warriors at Oracle in like 2011. And we were talking about, I asked him about when the Warriors had switched to his own defense. I talked, I asked him about what do you want to do in those first couple possessions after a team does that? And so we talked about how you want to attack it and you want to make them lose confidence because when a team switches to a zone, that means that what they were doing wasn't working. And so basically you want to make them lose their faith. And it was just a just amazing conversation. And so we talked for like five minutes about that sort of thing. And so I actually learned a lot from basketball. Like it, uh, The way I like to phrase it, it's actually something Festus Azili told me years ago is, or actually like a year ago, is I didn't have any bad habits because I didn't grow up learning those types of like old school things. So I just got to pick the brains of the smartest people in the world on this kind of stuff and put my own kind of intellectual take on it. Yeah, you made best of the opportunity that was laid out ahead of you. What what have you enjoyed the most from all of that? Because I, I, I'm sensing it's the learning. I think I think in listening to you, and, and, and I want to answer the question for you, but I think honestly what I'm hearing is that the most enjoyable piece of this entire ride for you has been how much you've been able to learn, and then that's that's made you feel as if you're growing and you are growing. Is that you know that is that the real intrinsic sort of reward and benefit that, that makes it all enjoyable for you? There are a lot of reasons it's enjoyable, but that's a big one. And the other part of it is being able to throw out ideas and being able to to see if it succeeds or it fails. I've been lucky that some of my bolder ones have been tested and have generally worked. Like I was the first Warriors writer on the train of Mark Jackson is holding this team back. And if they had another coach that was more creative, they could do a lot better. Lo and behold, like a year later, they fire Jackson due to reasons unrelated to that. And and it turns out, you know, I was right. I didn't know that. You know, it's not like I was a soothsayer or anything like that. But that is also really cool. Because and, and I'm not saying it was great because I was right, though that certainly was wonderful because I then got to cover a championship team. It's the idea of being able to not only throw your ideas off of the smartest people, but have some of them actually get tested. Because as long as you don't have an ego about it, there's nothing more fun than the basketball equivalent of the scientific method. And it's okay to be wrong, correct? It's great to be wrong. I mean, you have to come at it from the right way. And as long as you're capable of, of coming at it from, you know, as long as you come at it from a justifiable place, and that's always a learning experience. I mean, I've I've talked pretty openly before about how kind of getting LeBron's decision so wrong in 2010 informed me about the way that I thought about trying to predict what free agents are going to do. You know, then I started thinking about the best overall situation. And that's part of the reason why I was, on the Kevin Durant to the Warriors thing so early is that I would, what I focus on now in free agency is what, what is, what is a case that a team can make that nobody else can make? And, you know, that was something that I would have never thought of like really focusing on until I got the LeBron thing really wrong. 
You're so methodical in your approach. It's really just listen and you communicate it well. Those are two strengths that I think you have. And you talk about not wasting people's time. You've put a lot of thought into this just prior to coming on to the show because I can you can just hear it in the way that you answer questions. So I'm I'm really amazed at the methodology that you put into play as you analyze where what are you going to do? How where are you going to spend your time? You know, what makes sense? For Danny LaRue, when you've got a thousand competing sort of expectations, or maybe there's you want to do a hundred things and you can only do ten, and how do you choose which one you're going to do? Uh, how how do you go through that? I, I think that something that has been a character trait, and my family would laugh because it's been a character trait for me since I was a kid, since I was five, since I was eight, is I'm incredibly pragmatic, and th- in some ways that leads to you know can lead to some negative things in other ways, but for me it's the idea of I look at it honestly and objectively, knowing the information that I have at that time, and say, okay, well, what what can I do with this? What can I do with that? And like, for for example, I mean, you're talking about the idea of choosing your approach. And this is something I highly recommend for people who are writers. I've started doing this about a year and a half ago, is I have a, a notes function, which fortunately now communicates between my phone and my desktop, of column ideas, thoughts, that kind of stuff. And it's not just basketball, but a lot of it is. And then... I, you know, and so then if I'm kind of either running low on something or then, then I have a record of it. And so I, I find myself sometimes then going back to that. It's not really to think of column ideas, but it's like, oh yeah. And then maybe that thought's been rattling around in my brain a lot. And so I do that. And, and you talked about, you know, kind of being methodical, almost nothing that I write comes out the day that I thought of it, you know, like the LeBron piece that I wrote for the sporting news on the day he signed, which I believe was Thursday. That was one of the first pieces in a while. Actually, no, that piece was delayed. It came out the day after, but I, I submitted it the day before. I generally try to sleep on something. I have a lot that's not time sensitive. And actually, so for the athletic, which is a startup that I'm doing Warriors work for, I push them to allow me to do my not game recap, but whatever we're calling it, my analysis piece the morning after, because I wanted to sleep on what I had seen and often talked about with Nate Duncan on Dunked On and really think about it before I wrote, because sometimes my opinion would change. Sometimes my argument would get better. And also then you can, it's easier to incorporate video and things like that. So the, there isn't as much of a desire for that immediate reaction now because we have things like Twitter that can fill that void. And so I think that that's kind of where the new, the new market is going to be is, okay, what do people who can, be a little bit more judicious about it. What is giving them a little bit more time to think about it? Change the way that they're approaching this. One thing you said there that I think is definitely something, it's a hallmark of, of what I do, and it really ties into you maybe exploring the athletic um, in, in the next question, which is to document. Document your ideas. There are times when we all think, oh, that idea is stupid. It's only stupid if you just let it go to the wayside. It may not be right for today. It could be right for tomorrow, but if you look back at it three months from now and you say, no, that really isn't good, you can fun- you can funnel it off your list, but I'm a firm believer I use the notes as well. I use Outlook and all of those kinds of ideas and concepts that just aren't concrete yet, or maybe it doesn't feel like the right time. It goes into a repository, and then they, not always, but they can often then become something. And the reason that's important and how it ties in with The Athletic and my next question is that I currently work in a startup, a company that's a startup. Um, It's only been in existence for a few years, and it's a completely different environment, but it's one that definitely thrives off creativity. And so I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit more about The Athletic and how 
working in a startup environment is very different from maybe your work with the sporting news or even with, you know, doing the Real GM radio podcast on CLNS Radio or your work on the Dunked On Basketball podcast. I, I can just sense or, and I know from experience that that startup world is, is totally different and not always meant for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think that The Athletic has been really different from some of the other ones that I've heard about for a couple of different reasons. But what is great about it is that they are still building their structure. So you can think about basically any entity that has existed for a period of time, they get into a pattern. And that pattern is often a good thing. It is a distillation of best practices, we can call it. But when you have the experience, let's say, that I do, having worked, you know, been in this business for seven years now and worked at a lot, write, wrote, written for a lot of different places, is that I have an idea of how some of that works too. And so they're very open to input and to doing everything the best, best that they can. The Athletic is really young. I believe that it started in something like February of this year. And so they're, it's, it's really focused in Chicago right now. But the brass of it is actually based in San Francisco, and they were familiar with my work. And so they actually reached out to me to talk about the concept of their site without any potential rule for me. And I was just I'm like, hey, I'll have I'll talk with anybody. And so we had a really nice conversation. I was very impressed with what they were doing. And then when my when I opened up, then we ended up having a, a very different conversation about, like, could I do something with them? And the most impressive part of this, and th this is something that I have embraced myself as in the times that I've gotten to manage people is I've been super impressed with the idea that at one point I was bringing up some sort of structural idea and they said the words to that they'll probably make your heart flutter a little bit of we don't want you to worry about doing any of the stuff that you're not best at we will make sure that we have the structure in place so that you can focus on what you do well and that is extremely uncommon and when you hear those words and that concept Try to hold on to it as long as you can. Well, it's unconditional support, essentially. Yeah. And, I mean, you have to earn that, and you have to you have to do your best to, to live up to that. But that is something that is incredibly nice. And, you know, every place has their own models. And no matter what, you're almost always going to be doing, at points, doing things that you don't like. I mean, it's a lot easier when you're doing that writing about basketball, which is just fun in and of itself. But getting that kind of support, has been really great for me. And also, like I'm somebody who doesn't have the type of ego, which is another thing that I would recommend to people, where if I suggest something and it never happens, that I don't let that bother me. You know, like there are a bunch of things that I, because it's a startup, you know, it's basically an open canvas that I pitch to them and they always listen. They always acknowledge the merit of it. And if they have clarifying questions or criticisms, they will share that. But if it doesn't happen, I'm not going to throw a hissy fit. You know, even if I believed in it, if I if I say something, just like when I say I don't write a piece unless I believe in it, if I'm going to propose something, I believe in it. That even even in that case, there are times that you can do it, and then maybe sometimes you'll bring it up again in the future and things like that. And so it's great to have people who will listen and consider it, but won't bow over to you just because you, you have you've been with them or you have some sort of pull. Because that's really what every level of this is about is just an honest and straightforward and respectful exchange of ideas. Yeah. And sometimes the timing's just not right. It's not that the idea is a bad idea, but I definitely know and understand in a startup, you have to be judicious about where you spend your money and where you place that effort. And so it might be, Hey, that is a great idea. It's just not a great, great idea for today because of the logistics and the cost behind it. But 
maybe in six months, maybe in two years, you know, don't let go of that idea. But I think what you're really saying is just the freedom and the space. It's almost like being in a healthy marriage. You know, you can tell your spouse whatever you need to say so that the marriage goes on and thrives. And if you don't have that, it can be a struggle because it's about effective communication and not stifling one another. Well, and and one, one that point, exists professionally as well as personally. One one other point I want to make, though, is it's also not just necessarily for a good I- a good idea that just doesn't have the time. It's also for an idea that you have it that they have a different perspective on. You know, it's like the idea that maybe I had a, a good idea on this, but then I didn't think about the like logistical, technical back end of it, and like, oh, how would we make this work? And that that's important too. Like you need somebody who can tell you no when the answer should be no. Right. They have your back from a from a good from a good standpoint as well. Right. That collaborative dialogue. All right. So listen, this has been fantastic. And I, I can't even believe we're coming up on an hour already, Danny, because I've really enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. I have a couple of things I do. I want to go back to the Celtics and maybe, you know, tie it, tie up the interview a little bit with some parallels to the Warriors, which are sort of obvious, but want to do that for the for the listenership as well. And I do want to also bring up Mark Spears because you, you mentioned him earlier and he's a good friend of the show. So I, I want to go to that. But before I do that, um, I'm wondering if you have a funny story to tell. And I, I'll tell you one of mine. It's not from covering the team, but it's a professional sort of funny story, something along these lines. And sometimes it helps if I tell mine. It gives you a second to think of one that, that maybe comes to mind for you. And if you don't have one, that's fine, too. But I can tell you I, I had this one time I, I, I moved into – it was a previous company I was working with, large corporation. I'd moved into the position of regional vice president. I was about to take a customer customer down to do a site tour of one of our manufacturing plants. And as I get ready to go, I pack everything up, I get in the car, and I drive down to uh, the airport because I'm going to stay in the hotel overnight because I've got an early night, uh, early morning flight with the two customers. But we've got to be over there uh, by six o'clock in the morning, and I've got an hour and a half drive from my house. So I pack everything up and and I go down and I check into the hotel room and I go to bed and I wake up in the morning, take a shower, get ready. And then all of a sudden I realize I totally forgot a shirt and tie. I had, you know, I had everything else. I had my suit, but I did not have my shirt or a tie. And so I had to go meet the customers, get on a plane. And the irony was that as soon as we got off the plane in the town where our manufacturing plant was, we were headed right over. They were sending somebody to pick us up. And we were going to go in and uh, meet with the president of the entire company and do the tour with them. And I have no shirt and no tie. And so we wound up stopping. We had a layover in Charlotte, stayed in Charlotte, and I was able to go to like a Brooks Brothers or something and get a shirt. And they steamed the wrinkles out of it. I bought a tie and we were on our way and nobody was the wiser. And the customer and I had a real laugh about it. But I can tell you it would not have been good for me if I had made it to the manufacturing plant and didn't have a shirt and tie with two customers in tow. So that's that's sort of my silly story, that awkward moment. And I know you mentioned there might have been some places you found yourself inside um, when you were covering the Warriors that maybe you weren't supposed to be in. Do you have a do you have a funny story like that from your experiences? I have a series of them, but I, I think I'll start with one that or the one I'll tell is not one that's really about me it's more one that i was there for because i just like this story so much that i want to tell it especially now that he's retired so i don't think this violates the code of the locker room because it was around so many people (laughs) so so uh this was years ago it was probably about 2012 back when the lakers were good 
Um, the Lakers had were were going clearly going to the playoffs, and the Warriors were not. So actually, it was probably longer ago. It was probably 2011. And the Lakers had been on a little bit of a downturn, and then they Warriors and they beat the Warriors, and they were going to the playoffs, all that kind of stuff. And uh, a media member uh, asked Kobe Bryant if that was an if it was a, basically a must win, if it was an important win for that team, and. And Kobe kind of looked at him strangely, and he's like, basically just said no. And that, but he was polite about it. But that's basically, he paused, but then he said no. And then after after everybody kind of had left, and Laura was milling around talking to other people, Kobe put his arm around that same writer and said, "We're the Lakers. No regular season game is must win for us." And I just lost it. First, first of all, because first of all, because that is it also fits in with the whole idea of how Kobe is so aware of his own legacy. Because that's the type of story that when somebody tells it, it makes Kobe just seem like a badass because he is. But also, it was just hilarious because, in in a way, that it was kind of poking at the ridiculousness of the question. It's like this team is going to the playoffs. The regular season game didn't affect their seating or anything like that. And so I just loved it. And I'm just sitting there dying. Another one for people if they want to dig it up is. Uh, so Jared Dudley, who is now back on the Suns, did a thing called JMZ, which was parodying TMZ, where he would do locker room interviews to his own teammates oftentimes. And after Amari Stoudemire dunked on Anthony Tolliver, one of the best dunks I've ever seen in person, uh, he did one of those in the locker room referring to himself as a, like, I think he referred to himself as a former athlete. And so you hear my voice in the background just dying laughing. And it became a thing, but it's like it was there. There aren't that many athletes that are really, truly, genuinely funny. But Jared Dudley is absolutely one of them. You tweeted that link out on Sunday, didn't you? I tweeted it out a little while ago. It was it was it was, it was related to when Amari, the day Amari retired. I think that was That's the day. What it that was. was the day yes. I did it, and like I, I was just laughing. Like there, people talk about how, and I think I think Bill Simmons has articulated this well about how it is true that they're like people think that athletes are funnier than they really are, and that is true. But there are legitimately funny times, and that was certainly one of them. Well, Jared Dudley is so positioned well for it. He is. He's. He's got. He likely will have the ability to be a commentator after his basketball career is over because he is so good with the media. Okay, so we're gonna I'm gonna tie up the other couple of topics and then we'll leave uh, an opportunity if there's something that you think that we should have covered that we didn't. But Warriors and Celtics parallels. Can the Celtics rebuild without going down the road of trading these players? Because I find myself becoming more and more drawn into the Brooklyn picks, and and I'm willing to be patient. As a fan, as the fan in me, I'm willing to be patient. They're good enough, and you said, you know, to your point, Isaiah's like one of those guys who can get you there, and he's, you know, charismatic, and he's fun, and the team is going to be enjoyable to watch. And they added Al Horford, and there's a lot of reasons why this is going to be an exciting season, and they still have a lot to prove in the postseason. With that all being said, I'm willing to be a little bit more patient. I'm not necessarily wanting to push all the chips to the middle of the table for another Gar- Garnett-Ray Allen scenario where maybe you only get three or four years. I'm looking at it like maybe there's like something really sustainable that could happen here. And when you look at the Warriors, they're probably the closest to that sort of model if the Celtics were to do that. Do you do you think that that's like a legitimate opportunity and do you see other parallels since you covered that Warriors rise? Is are you defining success as a goal to, is the goal winning a championship? 
I would say you've got to be legitimately contending for a championship and so being conference able to build conference final conference finals with some regularity, but a real chance. Okay. Yes. So one of my favorite stats is that, and this was actually on my first website. I talked about this that the last team, other than the Pistons, to win a championship without a player who had already won an MVP award was, I believe, it was the '82 Celtics. It was the one with Bird before he won his first MVP. And so that is a lens that you have to use if you're thinking about a championship team is, okay, who is good enough to win a most valuable player award? And the cold, hard truth of the matter is there is probably not going to be anybody on the trade market that the Celtics can really get like that. Westbrook would be the one possibility, but I don't think he, you know, I think his best chance is this year. But after that, I think he's going to be tailing off a little bit. You know, he's a guy who won't age particularly well either. He relies on athleticism, bigger, but relies on athleticism. So, as counterintuitive as this might be, if your goal is to win a championship, I actually think the best way to do it is to hope that you strike gold with one of the Nets picks. Because they're the players who are the most likely MVP winner, like those people who can do that in the future or have already done it, are really hard to get. You know, you really the the players who've changed paths, LeBron obviously changed and changed back, Durant to the Warriors now. And really it's that rare. Like that's how often it happens. That's why those are such big stories. So to me, I would try to, you know, keep a little bit of flexibility and focus on on those draft picks and maximizing that kind of a thing. If your goal is to win a championship, if your goal is to be consistently competitive and maybe tone down the ceiling, you can you can be a little bit more a little bit more try to go, go after, let's say, Jimmy Butler or something like that. You can do something like that. He's on a great contract. Paul George would be kind of similar in that vein. But I would actually go the route of flexibility at this point, even though, because I'm not sold on any real player that is available as being that guy. Yeah, you are talking my language 100%. I mean, this is this is where, especially because we, I think a lot of times you know you're going to get the star out of the draft. If you're going to have that game changer, they're probably coming out of the draft. And I am not, I do not scout college ball, I don't, but it's pretty much a consensus that 2017 and 2018 drafts are pretty well stocked. And the odds look good that the Nets will not improve substantially. It's still, hey, the Celtics may not get the number one overall pick because the lottery impacts that as well. But the depth and the talent at the top of the draft seems to indicate that they really, if they stick by these two picks, that they really could come away with something that could be game-changing long-term. And why not swing the bat? If you're already considered to be potentially one of the top three teams in the Eastern Conference, if you stay healthy. And the other rule with that is no bad contracts, because then if you can do that, then you are playing both things. This is what the Warriors did also through the good fortune of having Steph on that bargain basement contract, is that they were able to swing in the fences in kind of the free agent path, which the Celtics theoretically could do in addition because they have guys like Jay Crowder that are making no money. And so that is the other component of it is making sure that you don't get a contract that is so egregious that you couldn't move it. If let's say to give an example of a player, Anthony Davis, who could become dissatisfied with new Orleans when he becomes a free agent, if he, if he is going to listen, you not only want to be positioned well with cheap contracts because that's just smart, but it allows you to tie those two things together. And then you spend when you are at the level where you're, when you know that you're this good. And that's actually why I was so critical of Oklahoma city trading James Harden is because they had a championship team and traded it away for money. 
Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Uh, very astute there, and it ultimately cost them Kevin Durant, who you'll get to see play quite a bit this year. But I will also say that uh, Danny Ainge and Zarin are really great at not collecting bad contracts. And um, I think I think this came up on your podcast too, but there's this whole thing where all of a sudden there's money the next two years. And so everybody has the opportunity to pull in these uh, you know what it was it was actually on Celtics beat Larry H Russell was talking with Austin Ainge and Austin was saying how this year and next year because of the CBA and because of the increased cap space it's really changed the way that those you know contracts have even been viewed in the past because it used to be if you wanted to trade for a player you know, like a Kevin Garnett, there were only a few teams who could really handle that, that had the assets and the cap room or the ability to maneuver, you know, contracts. Well, now with all the cap space, it's sort of everybody's game. That's how Kevin Durant wound up in Golden State. It's everybody's game. That's another reason why I think the Celtics should wait their, you know, bide their time and wait through this a little bit because Danny will absolutely have himself in a position and maintain cap flexibility as he has in the past and and took scrutiny before it turned into Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen as well, mind you. There were plenty of people that wanted to run him out of town and he was really just maneuvering contacts uh, contracts and getting that cap flexibility and positioning the team so he could execute. And now I think this rebuild, there's even more flexibility, but I think you almost have to wait a couple more years because at this point, I don't feel like the strength is, you know, the bargaining position is the Celtics aren't in a position of strength for that. I think if they wait a couple of years, they'll still be that, you know, very mindful team that manages the cap well, and that could present new opportunities to them where maybe there aren't 10 other teams that they're bidding against. That's certainly a fair point, but something that runs against him, and this is actually part of the argument that I was I didn't mention but should have for, for keeping the picks, is that it's a lot harder now to acquire that James Harden, like the way the Rockets did of getting a guy pre-prime who looks like he's going to be really good because of the James Harden trade. Teams aren't moving those guys right now and you know generally speaking it's and that was partially let's say a misevaluation of talent it was also partially their unique ownership spot and all that kind of stuff I actually have a piece that I'm working on about that right now and so but what that did is it, it chilled the market for those type of guys you can even look at DeMarcus Cousins not getting traded for a couple of years and and all that sort of a thing is that teams now are being more reluctant to do that but your your point about the assets is well taken and i but i also think while you're right about cap space having assets is something altogether different and that's why you want to also have no bad contracts and have ideally good players on cheap cheap deals like let's say even Avery Bradley who it's not like he's you know it's not like he's a spring chicken you know he's he's a little bit older but he's on a great contract so that is a a, a positive in a trade it is not like he's not going to be the best piece of getting an awesome player, but he can be a positive part of it. And there are very few teams that can build that out of all positive things. And that's something that a GM really likes. Look at what, you know, getting Kevin Martin in the Harden trade and their picks and various things like that. That realistically is how most of these deals go down. Yeah, Avery Bradley is such an interesting one because it feels like he's been in the league forever. And I, if I'm not mistaken, he's 25 years old, yeah. which is really just crazy. He's got five more years before he's on the downside of 30. That's mind blowing for an all you know all first team defensive player last season, getting that accolade and and really played Steph 
extremely well in both of their matchups um, against the Warriors last season. So let's talk about Mark Spears since we have this Boston Bay Area connection, because as I'm sure you're aware, Mark covered the Celtics for the Boston Globe for a number of years through Kevin Garnett. Basically, he came on board when Kevin Garnett was traded and, and Ray Allen joined the Celtics in, in 07 heading into the 07-08 season. But Mark was a very good friend of the show, so much, in fact, that uh, he came on one of our shows and was talking about a movie he was trying to get made uh, about, I believe, his brother, who was um, a cop during Hurricane Katrina and was in the Superdome. And he did get the movie made, and ironically, it was a listener of our show that he said, look, we're trying to come up with the money, and he wound up getting some of the financial backing that he needed from an appearance on our show, which, trust me, for being on our show in like 08 or 09, podcasting really hadn't broken yet. I don't even know if we were getting 1,000 downloads a show, probably less. Um, But we had a loyal following, and they reached out to him. So he's always been um, just a, a great supporter of our show. We love him to death. And uh, if you do see him, please tell him Justin Poulin from Celtic Stuff Live said hi. It sounded like he had been very gracious with his time and uh, taking care of you in your early days as well, which is great to hear because he's just a, he's a great man. He, he really is. And yeah, I, I see him all the time. And it's it's not only is it wonderful when somebody who is as successful as he is, is is a really good person, but it, it's just it's fun to be around, Mark. I mean, he's somebody who. I think of in a lot of ways more of as a friend than anything else. And like, you know, we, we don't hang out a ton outside of Oracle that we have, you know, it, it has happened in the past and, but to just have him as a resource and just be, be somebody that we talk with, that I talk with. And I think, I think, I think I amuse him because I'm, you know, I'm so different from <laughs> he is and, and, but yeah. I have, but I have no qualms about, you know, saying what I think, regardless of whether it's popular or unpopular. And I think that is amusing to him. And so we, we get along well in that sense and know that it, it comes from a positive place, you know, like that idea of, as we talked about with the athletic of like a free exchange of ideas is that, that it's everything. And so yeah, he's, he's been a, a great guy and there, there are a lot of them in the Bay area. I've been so lucky that it, it's a very supportive community. And also I think in pure honesty, it did help that I was doing something very different from them. And I, I don't think, any of the group, Mark, Marcus Thompson, Rusty, Rick Buecher, whoever, that they were, that they were at all concerned that I was like encroaching on their territory. But I don't. I think they would have been great anyway. Like I think they've been a lot better. They've been great with Ethan Sherwood Strauss, who came behind me and is doing more of what they do. But it's it, it is really wonderful, and it was a part of the motivation for me of trying to trying to help other people out. Yeah, I I definitely am going to have to reach out to Mark and have him come on this podcast, you know, because he played college ball, Mm -hmm. suffered a knee injury, which many good ballers do uh, lose out on that that opportunity to hit the pros because of injuries and whatnot. You know, you, you have to be good, but you also have to have a little bit of luck. And I think his story about how he ultimately ended up covering uh, the uh, the association on a national level would be a great story as well. So um, I'm glad you brought up his name because good friend and, and I do miss seeing him around. Uh, is there anything as we close out this interview that maybe we'd be remiss if we didn't give you an opportunity to talk about sort of along the theme of, of this offseason interview series talking about 
your career, how you got to where you got to. And, and I know you said that you're going to get this like pen to paper or, you know, keys to screen and, and have some of uh, this thought out and, and post it as a resource to the people who follow you. But anything else that we really should cover before, before we wrap up the interview? I have one and that's don't make un- enemies unnecessarily. Like you see a lot of people who try to especially this is a Twitter thing, but it's also a writing thing. They try to make their name off of taking other people down. And I don't really mean athletes. I mean, more particularly other writers and writing. I did it. I'm openly admitted. I wrote pieces very critical of John Hollinger and and other people when I was starting out. And what the reason is that it's not really a great way to elevate yourself. And the business, as I said, it is a very small world. And so if like there isn't really i i've never really found a good reason to burn a bridge that does not mean don't call somebody out you know if somebody says something that's silly or whatever you have to have the guts to, to have your convictions and all that like Nate and I disagree all the time i disagree with a lot of prominent people but don't get petty don't do it when it's not justified because you never know when that person will be a reference or be in in the corner and you never you never know and so like it's just it's it's harder to be to to avoid those kind of like negative things in that way or the pot shots, but they're really not that fulfilling in the end. And that's something that I learned as I matured. And I'm really happy that I generally keep myself out of at this point. You know, that's like sales 101 in uh, something that I had to learn, not only as I just grew into becoming a man, and but also as I moved from that more nine to five into sales where perception is even more your right, your reality, your financial reality. And 101 is don't talk negatively about the competition. And it's sort of similar too in the way that you've talked about structuring your argument, right? You acknowledge that that other side is there. But you let your argument speak for itself. That's sales, and that's how I think everybody should approach their career. Stepping on other people, speaking negatively, anything you can do to just stay in a realm of positivity. And I know it sounds a little bit like that book, The Secret, and maybe it's hokey. But the truth is that if you're a positive person, you're more likely to attract positive things to come to you. Maybe not always positive people because, you know, there are negative influences everywhere in the world. And sometimes we are one of those negative influences, depending on where we're at in our life. But you make a great point, which is, you know, really avoid that negativity. Try not to make enemies, stay positive. And the more people that have nice things to say about you when you're not around, the better your career will be. Can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Also, make sure that if somebody pays you to do something, you do a good job and you do your best. Because and that is on time. And on, and time, on time. Because that is another really important factor in this. Because if you start to get the that sort of a negative rep, that can be a real problem. Even if you're dissatisfied, even if you're on, on that contract, just make sure if you want to get out when you can get out, do that. But just make sure that you're living up to it. And that's kind of the other side of the making sure it's always worth the listeners times is you never want somebody to regret hiring you and paying you money. Well, the industry is so entrenched in reputation. It can be really hard to get your reputation back if you've sullied it. Yep. All right, Danny LaRue, everybody, uh, newcomer to CLNS Radio with Real GM Radio Podcast. Absolutely have enjoyed the shows, Danny, and, and I hope to have you again 
uh, here to talk Celtics and NBA in general once the season gets kicked underway. And I know you just wrapped up and posted the newest episode of the Dunked On Basketball podcast. So everybody should be checking that out as well as your salary cap and CBA coverage for the sporting news and the startup, The Athletic. So follow Danny on Twitter 100%. Definitely am really excited to have you uh, for your first time on the show, Danny. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Danny LaRue, everybody. What a fantastic interview. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Danny LaRue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R. O-U-X. Check out his work over at Real GM. Make sure you download the CLNS Radio app and begin to subscribe to the Real GM Radio podcast. Don't forget the Dunked On Basketball podcast as well, which he co-hosts with Nate Duncan. And new content from The Athletic. Danny was such an awesome guest. I think there's a couple of things that I take away from that interview that I thought were really, really important for people like Bobby Manning, who are just beginning in their career. Number one, do it for love and not money. I can tell you it's absolutely true. Obviously, getting paid would be great, but as you're getting your start, you've got to have the passion. And if you don't show the passion, then you're not going to succeed. And quite frankly, you're not going to have the passion, as Danny said, if you're setting an expectation for yourself that you've got to make money or you can't keep doing it. You've got to do it for love. And I think the other thing is don't make enemies. I mean, everybody hears that one. Don't burn bridges, etc. But this one is really, really important because as he said it's really easy to take pot shots he even used the example where he took shots at john hollinger early in his career at the end of the day all that's going to do is close the door on opportunities for you so definitely keep in mind try to stay positive with all the content you provide and uh it's hard i understand a lot of competition out there it used to be that this was the only celtics podcast podcast available to anyone we used to do it live and it would go two hours and people would still download the show. But quite frankly, there weren't a lot of alternatives. I take a four-year hiatus, I come back, and now there are a zillion Boston Celtics podcasts. And so to stay relevant, you've got to love it. That's why I do it. I absolutely love doing this show, and I love doing it with John Duke, who's going to be back with me next week for another edition of Celtics Stuff Live. Just a reminder, too, that the interview this week was brought to you by Loot Crate, which is a monthly subscription box service. So there's another one. You know, very similar to um, Fan Essentials, except this one, Loot Crate, is for geeks, nerds, comic book lovers, and pop culture aficionados. And for just less than $20 a month, subscribers are going to receive a mystery box containing at least $45 worth of collectibles, figurines, apparel, and memorabilia. This month, August, is the perfect time to explore the anti-hero. From bad guys doing things for the wrong reasons to good guys with questionable tactics, just walk this hero-villain line with a 100% exclusive collection of items from DC Comics, Archer, Dark Horse, and Kill Bill that includes two great collectibles, a wearable, and of course, our monthly tee. And don't forget the pin. All you got to do is head over to lootcrate.com backslash CLNS and enter the code CLNS, and that's going to save you $3 on any new subscription. So again, a huge thanks to Danny LaRue for being our second guest 
Great lineup so far. I'm glad he brought up Mark Spears. I had Mark in my mind as somebody else that should be involved in this offseason interview series. Definitely going to be reaching out to him. We are going to be talking with Chris Forsberg and Chad Finn. Chad Finn, obviously, on the episode with Bobby Manning that was the inspiration for this series. So Chad and, and Chris have both been recent guests of Celtic Stuff Live. We're going to hear from them a little bit later in September as we close out this series to get you all the way up to training camp but Mark Spears has got to be a must-have and also if you have any ideas of people that you would like to hear their story and how they made it in either new or traditional media to be able to cover your favorite team the Celtics maybe they're covering it on a national level hell maybe it's not even sports but maybe it's somebody that you think would be extremely interesting to provide insight in this world of how do I establish myself as a credential member of the media, either with the Boston Celtics or in some other avenue. All you got to do is tweet at us, at CSL underscore Justin, at CSL underscore Duke, or tweet our general show Twitter account, at CSL underscore Tweet Live, and throw some recommendations at us. We definitely want to hear from you, and we want to make sure that we're providing something that's interesting. You know, as as Danny said, we don't want to waste our readers, or in this case, our listeners' time. So with that in mind, we're going to announce the Fan Essentials winner for this week to get a free month of Fan Essentials team gear shipped directly to your door. This week's winner is at GhostDog444. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. This broadcast will be available on demand on the CLNS Radio mobile app as well as clnsradio.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at CSL underscore Justin. And John, you can follow him at CSL underscore Duke. At CSL underscore Tweet Live is the general show Twitter. John and I both checked that one. Big thanks to everybody for tuning in. And you can support the show by subscribing to Celtic Stuff Live on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review. The show is really really needing your feedback to make it better. It's important to us. Make sure you go and give us a rating and a review. A reminder that today's show is brought to you by Loot Crate Fan Essentials and our newest sponsor, audible.com they've got great deals for all of you listeners but most importantly you would be supporting our show celtic stuff live and the entire clns radio network a big thanks to the entire loyal clns radio audience making this all worthwhile for john and i and the guests that we bring on the show and for staff writer eddie santiago program director larry h russell the founder of clns radio nick gelso and my co-host john duke who will be back next week i'm justin poolin Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Celtic Stuff Live. Celtic Stuff Live.